what we're starting to see now um, in terms of mainstream entertainment, but also in terms of uh, educational content, is this real growth in the this sense of this safe space to to explore some of these more personal ideas. Welcome to Talking About Kids. I am your host, R. Bradley Snyder, researcher, activist, and author of The Five Simple Truths of Raising Kids. Over the course of my career, several private sector and public sector companies have asked me to help them develop animation on topics ranging from banking to relationship skills. And each time, the justification these companies gave was, well, kids like cartoons. Interestingly enough, I also conducted research with parents and found that many would prefer that their children not watch animation because they felt that as a medium, it somehow is less healthy than live action. So I decided to do this episode entitled How Animation Can Help Kids in order to explore what animation is and who and what it is good for. And my guest is Mark Collington. Mark is a senior lecturer in animation production at the Arts University Bournemouth and the author of Animation in Context, a practical guide to theory and making, which I first read several years ago, but now continue to reference because I think it is definitive. This podcast was sponsored in part by the Arizona Department of Health Services' Must Stop Bullying campaign through its Title V Maternal and Child Health Program. For more information, go to muststopbullying.org. And now, the interview. My dad was a, a BBC engineer, British Broadcasting Corporation engineer, producer, presenter. So it's kind of in the blood. And uh, like a lot of people in my generation, he, he set me up with a Super 8 cine camera in the attic. And I played around with Lego, made Lego animations. Um, so that's kind of where it started. Um, but it, it wasn't a kind of foregone conclusion at the precocious age of eight or nine, that that would be a career. It was when I was 13 that I <laughs> reached that stepping stone. <laughs> um, my grandfather was an architect. Um, and so I kind of had these two interests in, in parallel, architecture mm. and animation. And then in the UK, um, when you get to about the age of 13, you, you head towards GCSEs, which are your exams, your kind of, mid-stage exams in your teenage years and you have to take options mm. and uh, I grew up in a generation where animation was not really understood particularly I had a private education at that point um, and the biology teacher at one of the parents evenings uh, made the spurious sort of re reasoning that I should pursue science uh, if I was into the arts which didn't really make sense but his reasoning was uh, I'd need to understand how to make cement hmm. on the presumption that if I was studying art, I'd go into architecture. Uh, but anyway, um, I mean, the kind of things that were inspiring me as well 
I was the generation that grew up on the early Miyazaki films like Castle in the Sky. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of world building. We talk about world building in animation where you kind of, you create a world. You literally right. build everything in that world. So this suited me well. I was interested in buildings. I was interested in animation. Um, so I realized, well, I could combine those interests mm -hmm. if I did animation. What is the definition of animation? <laughs> okay, well, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a nebulous question right. because it's evolving, it's evolving so fast, in, you know, in my experience. Um, I mean, I suppose if you sort of want to look historically, mm -hmm. in my mind, um, you know, the cartoon, the cartoon funny is the sort of progenitor to animation. Right. So with sort of thinking about sequential narrative in visual form, that might be satire, might be whimsy, um, and you'd find it in the newspapers for, for adults in the first instance, not for children. So I suppose, you know, to define, maybe define the origins there. But animation, interestingly, you know, it, it almost is the precursor to filmmaking right. as well. Um, because, you know, you're working with frames, you're working with... in the early days of the mutoscope parlors, you know, pre-Nickelodeon. Right. You know, you're dealing with sort of individual images. Um, so to define animation's origins is one thing historically. To define where it is now is, is quite another. Um, so, I mean, kind of the evolution from the printed page to the, the cinema screen, um, thanks largely in part to Chaplin in terms of kind of translating those mediums in many ways, kind of translating from one discipline to another mm -hmm. to film. You look at the early early animations, Mickey Mouse, that grew out of the cartoon funny in the newspaper. Uh, more recently, TV series like Boondocks kind mm -hmm. of come across from printed media, be that newspaper or mm -hmm. um, graphic novel. And then feature films like Persepolis, uh, for example, might touch on that a bit later, um, found their way from the, the graphic novel as well. So, so in terms of origins, you know, there's quite a range of origins that have kind of converged to create animation. But now animation is so pervasive, it's, it's almost everywhere. So right. it's kind of, well, how do you want to define it? It, depend, <laughs> it depends on the context. So, you know, in terms of visual culture, um, We've got 2D stop motion, yeah. 3D, you know, it's kind of what we see in the cinema, what we see on TV, but it informs visual effects, gaming, um, virtual reality, augmented reality, expanded cinema. So we're talking about things like project, projection mapping there, so mm -hmm. kind of immersive experiences. So to define it now, mm. I would say is, well, it always has been difficult. Right. Um, it's this sort of liminal form, but I mean, if you wanted me to boil it down to its core, uh, maybe you could say it's time-based storytelling. Mm. Um, it can be both linear and non-linear. Um, it's underpinned by the laws of physics, but breaks them all. Mm -hmm. um, it can be pure fantasy, but can tap into the deepest and darkest and most abstract aspects of the human condition. It involves theatre, architecture, fashion, fine art, music. Um, it's kind of, it's a microcosm of everything. Right. What about animation is particularly suited for a kid audience? Or, or maybe it's not, or, or maybe it's more suited to certain subject matters or certain types of stories. 
so starting from an academic or educational point of view, um, I think we need to look at the continuum of the audience. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really key for me. I've given this quite a lot of thought over the last 10 years. Um, we've seen the adult audience for animation grow. Mm -hmm. uh, that is in part due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we saw a slowdown on the production of live action content and an acceleration of uh, animated content. And that has potentially grown adult audiences for the medium. Um, I mean, that's been there for some time. You think of Adult Swim, uh, Cartoon Network, yeah. you know, the kind of content produced there, we can think of coming back to the boondocks, for example, kind of semi-satirical content. Um, and we've seen in recent years, we've seen an increase in animated documentary, which I can talk a bit more about mm -hmm. perhaps uh, shortly. Um, but I think there's a trickle-down effect. And I think what we're seeing is animation uh, assume much more sort of cultural significance across the board. For the, uh, but I think, therefore, the kind of subject matter that's being discussed through animation is really broadening. I mean, you know, once upon a time when you followed the sort of Disney fairy tale formula, and I'm, I'm not Disney bashing here, I'm just, you know, mm -hmm saying it as it is kind of you know you were dealing with children's tales mm -hmm. for for a lot of kind of uh animation history um to suddenly much more contemporary writing for animation for you know even as mainstream as pixar tapping into tapping into quite sort of um sensitive issues mm -hmm. like loss loss death um uh, increasingly sort of looking at emotional intelligence and that kind of thing in, you know in certain films um, and then you see you know you start to see more independent filmmaking animated documentary in, in a broader sense I can ex explain what that is in due course but seeing subject matter um, you know films like Persepolis which is about kind of um, oppression mm -hmm. and re regime change in, in Iran so there's this bigger cultural backdrop I would say, that informs everything. So what does that mean for kids? Well, I would, I would conjecture there's a trickle-down effect because what your parents are watching mm -hmm. may, may influence kind of what they filter for you. Probably at this point, I would go on to talk about animation and the safe space, um, an animated documentary, if I may. Yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't know whether I've answered your question quite there, but um, I've tried. <laughs> well, I, I think we're getting at it. I mean, I think that like, it, if the listeners want to think about how to use animation in, in their work or with the kids in their own life, if they're parents or if they're teachers or if they're direct service providers, I think we're, we're getting at that. Like, what does animation bring to the storytelling, to the teaching, to the education that other mediums don't? So I, so I do think that talking about animation in a safe space is going to help get us to that answer. Okay. So I think before I even get to that, I think, I think there's another point that's worth touching on, and maybe we unpack that a bit later as well, which is uh, talking about writing. Mm. And I think this is something you have some experience in, in at least in terms of consultancy um 
is you need to have really good writers mm -hmm. for animation when you're thinking, particularly when you're thinking educationally. And I have it on fairly good, um, fairly good opinion that, it, you know, until fairly recently, a lot of what purported to be educational, the writing wasn't. Right. You know, from an educational point of view, I think for children to read stories and to be taught how to analyse them, I think is really essential. And it's something, you know, I, I put a lot of emphasis on in my own teaching and my own research is kind of without wanting mm -hmm. to overanalyze things and look for meaning that isn't there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always got to be careful of that. But I, I think, um, you know, things like character alignment, for example, are really important. Understanding whose point of view we're um, seeing the, the story mm -hmm. from. And I think that I was going to come back to uh, the film Persepolis. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know whether you've seen mm -hmm. Persepolis, but for the benefit of the listener, Persepolis was a, a, a film uh, made um, in 2007. It's about the Islamic Revolution in Iran. It's set in 1978. Um, it emerged from a graphic novel uh, by a female uh, graphic novelists called Marjan uh, Satrapi, uh, and it's a it's a docudrama. It's uh, and it 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 charts the life of a young Iranian girl growing up during regime change, um, and her migrating to Europe. And for me, part of the success of that film was was it did again. It took that sort of it managed to simplify the visual mm -hmm. the visual form so that you were focusing on the story mm -hmm. and the story of the character rather even though they you know there were cultural uh, there were cultural components visual components mm -hmm. that kind of helped you identify kind of time and place and context um yeah i mean it comes back to the writing again you mm -hmm. know it's and it come because it emerges from a graphic novel i think that you know that's interesting that it's, it's kind of there's a sort of writerly tradition there so it'd be interesting to know, you know, more about the writing behind those. But essentially what you've got there as well is you've got something that's factually based. Mm -hmm. um, so this now is my segue into animated documentaries. Please. See, I'm itching to talk, talk about it. But I, I think it, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's something f for all educators and, and parents. I think it's a, um, it's a sort of genre, if to, you know, for want of a better term that it's, worth knowing a little bit about um and the animated documentary um not that uh, um not that persepolis is an animated documentary it's a docudrama but it, it kind of there's overlap in mm -hmm. terms of its territory um and it comes back to my early point as well about distinguishing between adult teen audiences and kids audiences is you have this medium of animated documentary that's very popular um because it creates um this safe space for exploring sometimes challenging um subject matter um and you've got various uh leading academics in the uk and the us um to name a few in the uk you've got jane pilling paul wells paul ward bella honest rowe uh, who've written extensively about the evolution of the animated form. And maybe it was the 1990s when um, the affordability of technology meant that 
gave rise to the independent animator. Suddenly, you could you can anyone can make an animation at home, mm -hmm. right? Uh, once it was kind of the preserve of the studios who had access to the kit and the technology, and so what you kind of saw up until that point perhaps was content that, when I say it played it safe, it's not there shouldn't be any negative kind of connotation there. Just you you know you got to be careful when you have got ratings for mm -hmm. for for TV and and cinema. So so there was kind of the subject matter was kind of limited perhaps and also you've got a studio system that that's a legacy of you know another era where the majority of the authors and directors would have been male so there would have been a you know a certain world view um kind of perpetuated perhaps in the narratives and then what you see in the 90s is you see an explosion of independent animators that kind of make their way onto the well a steady trickle <laughs> of uh, independent <laughs> animators who start making their way onto the the, the festival circuit uh, and some of the kind of more progressive TV networks, you know, kind of late night viewings. Yet, um, I think it's called Formations in the UK on uh, our Channel Four, which started screening alternative stuff. And you got what this idea of the safe space, this kind of this this medium where you can kind of. You're creating content sometimes on very personal issues that is screened in a, to a particular audience, a particular time slot. These days, you know, you've got the festival circuit that creates that kind of safe audience space, um, and this notion of something—it's probably a dated concept now—but um, notion of a feminine aesthetic, and that that's not limited to female, male, or gender non-binary filmmakers. It's just this idea of an aesthetic where some of the things that would have been taboo mm. in mainstream cinema and TV could now be discussed. And in terms of the writing and the visual representation as well, uh, it was a much more uh, open playing field mm -hmm. in terms of what means of communication. So production values change, uh, writing changes. You know, if you, if you want to go deeper in terms of filmmaking, and I think this is interesting, again, for educators and parents, is, is looking at the kind of subject matter that can be discussed and how it's presented. And you're seeing a lot more diversity now um, in animation production. Uh, you're seeing short films uh, looking at things like neuro neurodiversity. So going back to the early 90s, you had Airs for Autism by Tim Webb. Um, then around 2000, I think it was um, Snack and Drink by Bob Sabiston. Again, kind of documenting uh, one person's ex lived experience of mm -hmm. autism. Uh, and then uh, 10 years ago, roughly 2010 maybe, Samantha Moore made a film about synesthesia mm. uh, called An Eyeful of Sound. And one of the things that animated documentary can do particularly well is it can present the aesthetic lived experience in a semi-abstract way right. um, th that doesn't have to use kind of conventional documentary forms such as the interview, the expository documentary presenting facts, rigid facts and artifacts. So what animated documentary can start to do, and we start to see this in films where they kind of ebb and flow between more simplistic representation to then semi-abstract aesthetic experience which can be rhythms colors mm -hmm. sounds so 
And what this is, as a, a broader context to this, now what we're also seeing is um, how this sort of therapeutic uh, potential of animation. Mm. Um, and we've got an organization in the UK called um, Heart Healing Animation mm -hmm. Research Therapy, headed up by Melanie Harney. You know, you know of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so the kind of in terms of what can be spoken about, what can be explored um, with qualified practitioners, what we're seeing is, you know, we look if we kind of take a cross spectrum of edutainment, if you like, infotainment, uh, animated documentary therapy, um, what we're starting to see now um, in terms of mainstream entertainment, but also in terms of uh, educational content is this real growth in the this sense of this safe space mm. to to explore some of these more personal ideas so i'm i'm reminded of a couple things um one you know i'm reminded of the uh the singer lord uh i heard her being interviewed once and i the interviewer asked about the musical instruments that she played Right. And and she said that you know she she didn't or not well. She said, you know, my my family there weren't we didn't have money for lessons to play musical instruments. We didn't have musical instruments. She goes, but I can program the hell out of uh, pro tools because the right. the software was easier for her to access. Computers were easier for her to access than uh, a instrument and lessons on learning how to use that instrument so she could make her own songs on a computer and it could be entirely her vision and so right so the filmmakers that you're talking about were able to do that too like they were able to animate and and um realize a vision that was very very personal partially because of the medium and because of kind of the democratization of technology for creating animation Right, and and now on a whole new level as well, because of course you know if you can afford a a mobile phone, I mean, whether you can afford one or not, right. it sort of all <laughs> seemed to happen foisted upon us. But it, you know now the the range of apps you've got, and they're so much more intuitive now as well. You know, the the user interface is is so well designed that um, you know you don't need to be an animator right. to you don't need to be an animator to make an animation. And I'll take that a stage further as well. I mean, it's, it's also it's kind of coming back to kind of, I suppose it kind of leads us into a kind of the, the final part of this discussion is um, when we talk about animation, we're not just talking about the outcome, we're talking about the process right. as well. And I think that's actually more important and it's certainly important in an educational context. I'm, I'm talking at university level, but we, we really put... Uh, in what I teach, which is storytelling uh, and and pitch developments, so pitching ideas, the really important thing is the process. It's not the glossy outcome. It doesn't have to be the the, the rendered bit of animation right. um, per se. So, as an educator, um, you know some of the things that are really useful is teaching, for example, storyboarding. Mm. So we've talked about the importance of kind of uh, literacy in terms of literature. Um, but then actually, you know, you don't need to make an animation in order to engage with animation. 
as a as an educational practice mm-hmm. or as a as a medium. So so the next stage from reading a, a text is to then think about how you visualize that as a storyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't require any more technology than a pencil and a piece of paper. Um, and in the same way with the world building, you know, uh, in terms of what you look at, you know, you've got concept art. Well, in a professional context, you'll need to know certain digital tools. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to go out with a, a sketchbook and a pencil and look at the world around you and draw it. Exactly. So, so, so I think if I can try and string some of these points together, um, you know, I think you are kind of your overarching question is why animation? Why are people saying mm-hmm. animation? Well, I think f- for me, I suppose it, it comes down to the process rather than the outcome. And it's, well, let's look at script writing. Let's look at storyboarding. Let's look at simple character archetypes and, and uh, visualization of those. Let's explore ideas through them in the same way that we would explore, I don't know, uh, in the same way we would explore maybe writing in English or or uh, certain basic physics experiments in the in the classroom. You know, you, we don't need the high tech tools. What we need to do is understand the process and where it leads us to. And and I think this, I think you know, this idea of the safe space is is very current, and it's kind of in terms of the therapeutic dimension, uh, in terms of enabling mm-hmm. new voices at whatever level and age stage they might be, is is equipping people with the tools to express the ideas. Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to, to uh, talk to my audience and help us understand the role of animation and what it could mean for kids. Thank you for having me. That was Mark Collington. For more information about Mark, please visit TalkingAboutKids.com. From there, you also can find out about upcoming episodes, suggest a topic, learn more about me and my books, or submit your questions for future guests. Our theme song is by The Senators. For more of their music, go to TheSenatorsMusic.com. As always, I hope you enjoyed the episode and please subscribe so that you don't miss a single one. And remember, kids are young goats and young humans. And the difference is that young goats are easier to manage.